Chapter Twenty Three of the Story of a Modern Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of a Modern Woman by Ella Hepworth Dixon. Chapter Twenty Three The Woman in the Glass. Mary walked rapidly round the Regent's Park. Over yonder, where the sombre trees massed themselves against the pale evening sky, came the sounds and scents of the oncoming summer. Children's shrill voices calling to each other near the ornamental water, the tread of sweethearts' feet on the gravel path, the delicate aroma of newly cut grass. All around her were simple human joys, but they were not for her. She had left all that behind her in that little room in Bulstrode Street, where sat the one man in the world that she cared for, the one man now who cared for her. There was no one else. There never could be anyone else. But it behoved her henceforward to be sensible, to be strong for both of them. She must never see him again, must, above all, try and think of Vincent as she used to do, before that afternoon in Harley Street, how many years ago now? when he had first made love to her and asked her to wait for him. How it spoiled everything, this eternal question of sex. It was almost impossible for a woman to see a man as he really is, and, in pursuance of the plan of being sensible, she went deliberately over Hemming's faults. They were obvious enough. He was weak, vacillating, his phrases were absurd. His ambitions, after all, were but vulgar ones, and he had not the will-power to carry out even his most cherished plans. He was all that, and yet he was the only man in the world that she loved, the only man in the world now who desired her as a woman. And yet she must walk on, get as far away from him as possible. Here at the north gate the slim young poplars detached themselves tremblingly against the pinkish sky, while in front of her stretched the long white avenue road with its substantial, scrupulously kept houses, holding themselves aloof in their leafy gardens. She would walk on until she came to Hampstead. Up there there was space, distance, once horizon opened out. Over the garden walls swayed the waxen, pinkish lilac. The scent struck her like a blow. That room, where they had been together, had been filled with the same penetrating, sensuous odour, pink lilac and foliage, made artificial-looking by the yellow light of a gas-lamp. How they always reminded her of Paris. Of Paris, where they might have been on their way by now. But she was walking alone, stealing her heart against him, in a road in a London suburb. On each side was the prosperous, orderly, contented life of the middle class, with its placid domesticity, its unemotional joys. From the open window of a long drawing-room came the sound of a young girl's thread-like voice. Upstairs in the nursery the lights were already lowered. The white street was deserted, but suddenly from one of the open gateways appeared a pair of sleek chestnuts. The carriage passed out, and, as Mary stood waiting at the curb, a man and a woman's smiling face were photographed on her brain. A prosperous, middle-aged couple going out to a placid evening's amusement. Then silence again. The girl pushed on past endless rows of houses, trim, smug dwellings, every one of which represented the family. 
that special product of civilization for which she as an individual was to be sacrificed on and on until at last through a dark leafy lane she emerged on the open heath the afterglow of a crimson sunset still hung in the west the surrey hills were faintly blue and the heath with its broken ridges topped with gorse and bracken swept in superb lines at her feet the air was very still over yonder a mysterious hand had hung a silver sickle in the pale twilight sky mary sank tired on to a seat but presently two vague figures approached in the growing darkness the figures of a girl and a young man working people both who sat awkwardly down at the other end of the bench and talked in jerky constrained whispers the girl's eyes were bent demurely on her lap but once when mary turned her head in that direction she could see that the young man's eyes were devouring the face of his shabby little companion with a passionate glance something tightened at mary's throat why to-night of all nights must she be reminded of what she was giving up she got up and began to walk rapidly homewards i was not wanted there i was spoiling their evening she thought i must learn to be discreet with some trepidation she rang the bell of her lodgings when did mr hemming go she asked about eight o'clock miss will you have some dinner no thanks sarah i can't eat anything to-night i've got one of my headaches mary went straight into the little study and shut the door outwardly nothing was changed the air was full of his presence there were the teacups out of which they had drunk the chair at the writing-table was still half swung round just as vincent hemming had left it it was here just at the mantelpiece that he had taken her into his arms and said all those mad things she went deliberately over the scene repeating in her mind everything he had said on the sofa the cushions were still tumbled where he had sat and sobbed oh for once she had made him suffer she flung herself down clenching her fists with her face against the silken cushions her other self revolted against the injustice of human laws the woman within her cried aloud in the darkness what had she done that she was always to be sacrificed why was she to miss the best that life has to offer she lay there a long time miserable stricken helpless then going into her bedroom she began to take off her dress mechanically and to unloosen her hair half dressed as she was she flung herself on the bed she was tired and footsore with her long walk for an hour she fell into a fitful sleep the night was warm but she could hear the flapping of the window blind swaying in a light breeze mary lay there a long time every nerve in her body quivering how long how long the night was would it never end never be daylight when she could get up and work again to work was to forget if only she could keep strong and not worry too much she got up presently weary with lying awake and lit a couple of candles on the dressing-table the flapping blind got on her nerves she had forgotten to wind up her watch but from the curious hush in the air mary thought it must be nearing dawn then she began to pace the room mechanically would the night never end in the mirror on the dressing-table she caught sight of herself as she passed 
Her fair hair was floating in a kind of halo round her head. Her bare arms and shoulders emerged from the whiteness of her bodice. How the eyes looked at her, hauntingly, appealingly, from out of a pathetic little face. She slipped into the chair at the table and leaned her face on her hands, looking gravely at the mirror. For a long time now she had had a strange sense of dual individuality. When she looked in the glass, a woman looked back at her with reproachful, haunting eyes. And to-night the woman looked at her appealingly. By the soft candlelight the face was curiously young. The cheeks were delicately thin, but the lips were those of a girl of eighteen. In the fluffy, fair head the few grey hairs were lost amongst the pale gold. There was the line of her throat, her beautiful white shoulders, the delicate modelling of her satiny arms. And as she looked, the woman in the glass softened with a triumphant smile. You may torture me, starve me, but you cannot make me unlovable. He loves me, smiled the woman. Why, he would ruin himself to-morrow for me. I have only to say one word, and his life is mine. What are we two, after all? Two atoms of matter, breathing, living, loving, suffering for one brief moment, on a planet which was once without organic life, and which is slowly grinding on to irreparable decay. A few more drops in the ocean of eternity, and we in our little loves and our little hates will be forgotten. A few more drops, and mankind itself will have disappeared, and once more a cold, uninhabited globe will continue its monotonous course round the sun. No one can stop the coming of the great year. Nature, insolent, triumphant nature, cares nothing for the individual. Summer and winter, seed-time and harvest, will come and go in the ages to come. But I, I shall not be here. Nestlings will crouch, chirruping under the eaves. There will be dew on the meadow-sweet, sunshine in the orchard. There will be lovers' glances and the laughter of little children. But for me, for me it will all be dark. Yet we do have the present moment. Let us keep it and hold it. We are alive now. We love each other. Give him to me. Only a few short years am I here, pleaded the haunting eyes. I, and such as I, tearing our little hands in the search for gold, shaking them at the heavens with impotent vengeance. Give him to me. Give him to me. The inexorable years, the years which fade and blight, will pass over us, and then our folly will be forgotten. Why, people in the next generation will shrug their shoulders and say, after all, they were only human. And I, pleaded the woman in the glass, I shall have lived. Mary dropped her head on her arms. The night was mysteriously still. The breeze had dropped, and an uncanny silence hung about the house. The window was shut now, the blind drawn. The two candles on the dressing-table were burning low in their sockets. When she raised her head again, the eyes were no longer triumphant. They were reproachful. "'Who am I? Why am I here?' they asked. "'To live is to suffer. Why do you let me live? Must I go on looking back at you until my eyes are faded, my lashes are grey? 
until I have run through the gamut of mental and physical pain. I am a living, suffering entity, said the woman in the glass, in a world of artificial laws, of laws made for man's convenience and pleasure, not for mine. Have I one thing for which I have longed? Have I a human love? Have I the hope of immortality? Have I even tasted the intoxication of achievement? Human life is but a moment in the eons of time, and yet one little human lifetime contains an eternity of suffering. Why, since you take joy from me, why do you let me live? Here, indeed, was a greater temptation than the one which she had just escaped. She sprang up horrified, afraid of the haunting eyes. Was that to be the end? Pacing the room, Mary fell to thinking of her father, of the kind-eyed enthusiast who, in his younger years at least, had little enough joy and much toil, who had been blamed and reviled and stoned by the public, and who had worked solely and single-heartedly for truth's sake. To strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield, she suddenly said aloud, it was a line she had engraved on her father's tomb at Highgate, a favourite line of his, of that dear worker of whom even to think was morally bracing. Yes, it may be that the gulfs will wash us down, it may be we shall touch the happy isles. But something ere I end, some work of noble note may yet be done, repeated Mary deliberately as she walked into the little study, pulled up the blind, and raised the sash. End of chapter 23 Recorded by Lisa Reichert